Bible Quest, the Wednesday edition. I am Jeff Smelser, and we're going to continue our study of the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, Joe Works is here with us from Elmire, New York. Joe, we're without Chase this afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Hello, Jeff. Good to uh, be on here. Uh, certainly we'll be missing Chase, but uh, really impressive recording seems to be going smooth. Facebook is going smooth. Um, uh, I'm just a, a Th things have really gone well today. Well, thank you, because I I never get it right. And I, so it's, it actually is on Facebook today. You confirm that? I, I believe it is, yes. All right, fantastic. Okay, good. Well, let's jump into it here. Um, we were talking about, well, let's just do a real quick recap. We started out in Matthew chapter 21. You have Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding in on the donkey, coming from the Mount of Olives, which would be to the east of Jerusalem, riding down, crossing. He would cross the Kidron and come into the city. And he comes in and he cleanses the temple. And, and of course, the religious authorities are, are in consternation. What gives you the right to do this? By what authority do you do, you do this? And so on. Uh, each night, he's going back out to Bethany, which is just across the, the crest of the Mount of Olives. And that would be where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived and uh, he goes back out there and spends the night and then the next day he'll come back into Jerusalem and he's teaching and, and the parables that he's teaching are an indictment of the religious leaders of his day and they even intimate that though some of the religious leaders some of the, the Jewish people will not be able to participate in the kingdom of God there will be Gentiles who will and of course all of this is really stirring up the anger of the religious leaders and then we went through chapter 24, and we saw where Jesus talked about the destruction of Jerusalem with his disciples. And then we come to the end of Matthew chapter 24. So let's pick it up in, in verse 45, Joe. Right. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. No, I don't know. It's the I don't know. If this is the clearest connection, but there's a song that comes to not to mind. There's room in the kingdom. There's work that we all can do. I think one of the messages of this passage here is that we do have work to be doing in the kingdom. His disciples are to be doing that work uh, when he leaves. He knows he's about to leave, and they're supposed to be doing that work. And he's going to come back. And if they have been doing that work, then all is well. And if they have not been doing that work, um, well, they're this, this servant who is uh, not doing what he's supposed to do in um, providing for everybody else in, in the household here. What are your thoughts on this section? Yeah, uh, so we talked a little bit last week about the destruction of Jerusalem in Matthew 24. Um, uh, I guess I, I have a question of whether this is still talking about the destruction of Jerusalem or if now he has begun to turn his attention toward um, the, um, the second coming, as we generally yep. uh, term that. Um, I think my general tendency would be to put this as the second coming, uh, put it more with chapter 25. Um, I think maybe there's a good argument to be made each way. 
one of the interesting things is the end of that chapter, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, that's a that's a Matthew statement. He's he uses that several times. Um, I think it's only, if I'm not mistaken, the only other place it's used is in Luke. Um, but he uses it in Matthew, in Matthew 8, and in Matthew 13, did it in Matthew 22, here in 24, and he'll do it in 25. Pretty clear that those all those other texts, I think, maybe I shouldn't say pretty clear, I it appears to me uh, that the other passages are talking about the end of the world, the second coming. Um, and so that at least gives some argument for this being that same time frame. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. Clearly, as you go through the first part of Matthew chapter 24, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. By the time you get to Matthew chapter 25 and the sheep and the goats, it's clear he's talking about the day of judgment at the end of time. So you know there's a transition from the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 to the focal point being on the end of time, but exactly where in the text that transition takes place, it's hard to know. But your observation is interesting, that phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and but, so, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, uh, turning attention just to this, that phrase itself, you know what, that, that, that should give us pause. Um, we have a choice to make. We can have this glorious future or the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, what is the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Uh, the gnashing of teeth expression is, is one that we don't really use in day-to-day -day conversation, but I, I think of going, when something's just, you're just grimacing and you're just like that and, and the weeping. Yeah, I, I, I would associate the gnashing of teeth with being like in, in great pain and suffering. And again, some of those other passages will, will liken that to being cast into the furnace of fire. And mm -hmm. you can imagine just being on fire, um, uh, Matthew 13, 43, 42, for example, um, uh, for being cast into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That, that gnashing of teeth seems to be just uh, you're in so much pain, you're, you're gritting your teeth. We, I think we might talk about gritting our teeth. In Matthew 22, verse 13, it's connected, that phrase, weeping and gnashing of teeth is connected with outer darkness, just completely yeah. removed from God's light. Um, you, you've known people, I think, who've, whose attitude is they'd rather be in hell because that's where all the fun's going to be. All their, all their sinner buddies are going to be in hell they don't much find it appealing to be in heaven and have eternal life with people who are goody two-shoes or, or righteous people. I'm going to tell you something. If, if, I am only, if I'm in an environment where I'm only with those who have been self-serving in this life, those who've rejected the kindness of God, uh, there is no light from God. You know, even in this world where we have sin all around us there's also good we say there's good in all people and i think really to some extent that's a true statement because everybody has benefited from the revelation of of god and from his light to some extent to be cast into outer darkness with his weeping and gnashing of teeth that doesn't sound pleasant not at all and i think when people say that it reminds me of jesus's statement uh, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, they know not what they say. Um, they, they really are, are speaking without any wisdom, without any understanding, at least at that moment, uh, those who would suggest that that's a good place to go to. Then we come to chapter 25, and he uh, has a parable about virgins 
Uh, and I'll read here. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be like unto ten virgins who took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. So their lamps would have been uh, probably little, little. Um, how can I describe it? If you could picture a, a syrup dispenser with a spout, spout on one end and flatten it so that it's a very flat syrup dispenser. Um, we could probably pull up a picture and show it here. Uh, just do a, a search on first century lamps. Um, but uh, then, then they, would, they would fill it with olive oil and there would be a wick hanging out the, the spout and this would soak up the olive oil and they could light that. So each of these virgins has a lamp. And so verse two, five of them were foolish and five were wise. So they've come to meet the bridegroom. This apparently would be um, something that would be understandable in connection with their marriage customs. Um, the, the wise, it says in verse four, took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So they have their lamp and they have extra oil, a container with extra oil. And the foolish didn't. Uh, the foolish in verse three took no oil with them. Verse five, now while the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. But at midnight, there's a cry, behold the bridegroom, come ye forth to meet him. And then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, give us of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, peradventure there will not be enough for us and you. Go you rather to them to sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went away to buy, the bridegroom came. And they that were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know not the day nor the hour. What a, what a scary scene taking place. Those who are unprepared. He's talked about the, the master delaying back in 2448. Um, uh, and so, uh, the master comes when he wants to come, the, the master's in charge. Um, uh, uh, so it's the, the servants or the virgins in this text need to be prepared. Uh, they don't know when the hour is. And so they need to be prepared for this. Um, and the difference is those who have made preparations, uh, versus those who think that they can wait till the very last minute. Um, uh, and, but the problem is they don't know when that last minute will come. Yeah. You know, income taxes, you wait till the very last minute because you know when it's due. Maybe you don't, but some of us do. <laughs> yeah. And you know when it's due. And so, but here the thing is, we don't know. We don't know. And so uh, those who are, who live their life in preparation over in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul talks about being sons of the day. Uh, he talks about the Lord coming as a thief in the night that is coming without warning. You don't know when he's coming but you are not of the night that it should overtake you that way if you are walking in the light. So that's, that's wise, but those who are not prepared are the foolish. Well, we come on to chapter 14. Anything else you want to talk about there? I want to move through this. Yeah, just, just really quickly. It's interesting how he begins this uh, book fairly early on with the Sermon on the Mount, talking about those who will say, Lord, Lord, and they're going to be turned away. Um, uh, they're not going to be welcomed in, in Matthew 7, 21 through 24 in particular. And then you have the same idea. These women are crying out in verse 11, 25, 11, Lord, Lord. And uh, he's going to say, I do not know you. Uh, the, the, same, the same idea uh, where they're going to, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you, 7, 23. Um, and, and the same thing here. 
Uh, and it, and as you and back there in, in Matthew 7, 23, immediately after that, he talks about the, the men who build their house, one on the rock and one on the sand. And the one who right. builds his house on the sand is the foolish. Yeah. Um, there, there is this perception amongst those who are wise in their own eyes that faith in God and, and living a Christian life, living a godly life is a foolish thing. Well, what Jesus is saying, those who think that way are the foolish. So we get to verse 14 of Matthew chapter 25, and he now tells the story, uh, a parable, of a man who goes away into far country, and he has some servants, and he leaves them each with some talents. Talents were, it was money, and he leaves them with varying amounts. Um, I'll read a little bit again. For it is as when a man, this is verse 14, it is as when a man going into another country called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And to one, he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to, eat, or to each according to his several ability. And he went on his journey. That's old style English. Basically, it's saying he gave them money corresponding to the ability that he thought they had in terms of, of being a good steward of these funds. Straightway he that received the five talents went and traded with them and made other five talents. So he did some good investing. In like manner, he also that received the two gained other two. But he that received the one went away and digged in the earth and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants comes and he makes a reckoning with them. And he that received the five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered unto me five talents. Lo, I have gained other five talents. His Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll set you over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And he also that received the two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered unto me two talents. Lo, I have gained other two talents. And his Lord said unto him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will set you over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. And he also that had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you that you are a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter. I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the earth. Here, you have your own. And I paraphrased a little bit there, but. So what's the what's going on here, and then we'll 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 read the rest of it in a moment and get the reaction. So kind of tricky because he talks about talents. He's not talking about that as the way that we use that word today. Somebody's abilities. While I think that might be a really good application, um, talents are referring to uh, to money um based upon the weight of the silver or whatever mm -hmm. um so we ought to expand the application to whatever it is that god has given us that would be my suggestion not just our talents whether it's speaking or serving or you know doing some specific thing uh god has given different men different gifts and we ought to use those but also even the very money that we have i think that would be the primary application that I would suggest we make uh, that, that we're responsible for that. But just whatever God's given us, we're responsible. And God gives it in different measurements to different people. Um, and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, uh, I, I know some five talented men, uh, some men that just have several gifts or several abilities and several opportunities, and they're using those really well. Sometimes what people do is they look at those and they become jealous of them 
and aren't doing, they're busy focusing on what those people are doing that they don't do what they're supposed to be doing. Um, or maybe they're resentful or whatever the thing is. Um, but what we ought to do is just what God has given us, we need to be using it. And some people are afraid. They're afraid to do what they could. They're fearful. And that's this guy with the one talent. He, he's afraid. And so his Lord said unto him, um, this is down in verse 26, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I sow not and gather where I did not scatter. You ought there to have put my money to the bankers and at my coming, I should have received back mine own with interest. Take ye away. He's now speaking apparently to the servant standing by. Take ye away therefore the talent from him and give it unto him that has the 10 talents. For unto every one that has shall be given and he shall have abundance. But from him that has not, even that which he has shall be taken away. Cast ye out the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There shall be the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So this, this last servant, he's fearful. He's fearful because he describes his Lord as one who gathers where he is not sown and so on. I don't think we're supposed to, to make this out to be a picture of, of God's character. Um, I think he's, he's, he's really just saying, Here, here's a human Lord to whom you are responsible and, and you may be fearful in, in, for some reason or another. You know what you need to do? You need to just fulfill your responsibilities. We have a gracious and, and magnanimous Lord. And yet the lesson is that if I'm fearful, and, and people are, even though we have a gracious and magnanimous Lord, there are people who are afraid to do the right thing. Um, and, and they don't use their talents. And, and certainly agree with everything you said. It is also true that the Lord is going to require of us what he's given and how, and, and how we have used it. We are going to be accountable right. for that. So he's given us seed. We need to sow that, whatever that means, whatever gifts, whatever abilities, whatever money, uh, we need to use that. And, and we're going to be held accountable for that. Uh, that that's a fair thing. It, the, the Lord is the one that's given it. it. It belongs to the Lord. He has the right to come back, just like what he talks about there in um, verse 26. Um, you know that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. The Lord hasn't done that, but he's given the seed and he's given us the opportunities to do that. And at the so same time, to... there is in this parable a recognition, as you mentioned a moment ago, not everybody has the same talents. Not everybody is a, is a five talent person. And I think the individual who is doing what he can with the talents that he has, the one talent man, the two talent man, he needs to, to be confident that his Lord is going to be pleased with him. He doesn't need to feel bad that he doesn't have this ability that he doesn't have. I, I probably need to preach more on the two talented man. He's not the five talented man. So he didn't, he didn't achieve five more, but he was a two talented man. He, he did achieve two more. And the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes just skip over that fella. Um, he wasn't busy comparing himself to somebody else uh, or anything else. He was just going to do what he could do. You know, we're always impressed by the five talented guy. The two talented guy did the same thing with what the Lord had given right. him proportionally. Right. Um, and so right. that's what we need to be busy doing. Right. It's also interesting to note some of the language for the third individual, uh, at least from the New King James, verse 26, he's identified as wicked and lazy. Yep. And then in verse 30, unprofitable. 
Right. Um, I don't know that I would typically uh, make those synonyms, and I don't know that they're necessarily intended to be exactly synonymous, um, uh, but wickedness and unprofitability and, and laziness, I think generally we think of wickedness as people doing bad things. Here was an individual that just refused to do the good things, and the master saw that as being wicked. There's a common element in, in this third man, the one-talent man, and the servant back at the end of chapter 24 who wasn't fulfilling his responsibilities, and the word useless comes to mind. Uh -huh. You know, in, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we've been created for good works, uh, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God saves us. He forgives us and he saves us, but he intends to use us. And we need to be we need to be useful in his kingdom. I sometimes pray just thanking God that I, as somebody who who has failed miserably, yet he has made it possible for me to be useful in his kingdom. That's a great blessing. We need to look at look at it that way. Let's come to verse 31 of Matthew chapter 24, and we get into a well-known passage here. Why don't you take us through this, Joe? starting in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. Yeah. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And let me just pause there and say, try to just picture that in your head. Um, uh, this uh, glorious individual sits down on the throne and begins to motion with his hands or whatever, and uh, the nations are separated, not nation by nation, but sheep and goat individually. They're right. being separated, each one being identified. 33, he sets the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left, and then he begins to explain what these two different categories, uh, what their, uh, their outcome is, is to be. So 34, the king will say to those on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When do we see you sick and in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. It is incredible. And, and I know that I'm reading this with a, with a certain tone, but those sheep that are on the right seem surprised by what the Lord has said. Right. You know, we, 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 didn't, we never did this to you. Uh, you know, they're, they don't understand. When did we do these things for you? Uh, and Jesus said, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it for me. And we understand that when we talk about our family. You know, um, uh, there's a lot that I would be willing to suffer for myself. You hurt one of my children, it's going to be really tough, uh, you know, for me to, uh, to take that. Um, uh, and so when you've done it to one of Jesus's brethren, and again, this is ties back into Psalm 22, uh, quoted for us over in Hebrews 2, right? Um, uh, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Um, uh, you know, wow, uh, Jesus is, is looking at us, and he says, even when you did it to one of the least of my brethren, that's what you've done to me. Mm -hmm. Jesus takes it personal when you have helped his people. 
so much of the scripture, so much of the of the rest of the New Testament, the, the letters to the Christians, think about how much of that involves the second greatest commandment. How are we going to treat one another? Just like just scan your mind through uh, you know, the last half of Romans or the last third of Romans, uh, most of First Corinthians. Uh, you know, several of Paul's letters especially talks about how we treat one another. First John is just filled with love one another. Um, we, need to, we need to think about how we're treating each other is a reflection of how we feel about Jesus. You know, understanding principles like how to worship properly, how congregations should be organized, and all of those things, those are very important things. But the congregation exists really to foster an environment in which we be the kind of people we're supposed to be. Amen. And this that you're talking about is the kind of people we're supposed to be. I think sometimes there's a tendency on the part of some of us perhaps to get hung up and focused on just the things like how should we worship, how should churches be organized, those kinds of things. And we forget how much stress is placed in the Bible upon the kind of people we're supposed to be. And, and maybe just tie that back to uh, the previous uh, two parables and what God has given us. How are we using that in particular in regard to one another? You know, how are we taking care of one another or with that first parable of, the, you know, uh, are we preparing for the Lord by taking care of and helping those who are less fortunate. That, that's the common denominator, right? People who are hungry, people who are thirsty, people who are strangers, people who are, are unclothed, people who are sick, people who are imprisoned. You know, they are less fortunate. Uh, they're in need. They, they need help. That's who we need to be looking out for. Right. It's right. not just doing unto those who have already done good unto us. Or, right. Yeah. Going back to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let's take a moment and go back and talk about sheep and goats just for a minute. It's interesting that he talks about sheep and goats. I'm not an expert in biblical times and how shepherds did their, did their work. We do have both sheep and goats, and it's interesting to see the difference in sheep and goats. Back in Ezekiel chapter 34, and coming down to verse 17, as for you, my flock, so it speaks of one flock. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams, which is a sheep, a male sheep, between the rams and the male goats. Um, so I do have the impression, and this, and certainly you would get the picture here from this passage where there's one flock and they're both sheep, rams, and male goats in the same flock. And ours sometimes will, will go together. Libby has been keeping them separate in recent years, but there have been times when she would have them all together and they would kind of function as a flock. But sheep and sheep and goats are very similar in a lot of ways. Um, you know, biologically, um, they're, they're, in, in fact, it's easy to see some animals and you can't tell at a glance is that a sheep or is that a goat and and the key is goats tails go up sheep's tails go down uh but there are times when otherwise if you can't see the back end you're not sure is that a sheep or is that a goat but behavior they are so so different sheep you can fence them in very easily goats wow trying to fence them in we have some fences that are probably, oh, I would say close to five feet tall. And we have miniatures. They're the little, little goats. 
And that male goat, if he wants into the does, the female goats, he'll jump it. And there are places we can't figure out how he gets over some fences or around them. They'll figure out a way. Sheep doesn't take much fencing. You put them somewhere, they're going to stay there. Sheep go about and they just kind of peacefully graze. They don't get into the chicken feed. The goats, they're going to break into the, if they can get in, they're going to get in and they're going to get into the chicken feed, which will kill them. But that doesn't matter. They're going to eat it anyway because they like the taste of it. It'll kill them. It kills them quickly. But, and we've had, we've lost some goats because they got into the chicken feed. Um, you know, goats, they're, they're, they're browsers, they're scroungers. They get into everything. Try this out. Try that out. You can't keep them in a fence. Sheep, not like that. Now, frankly, you ask me, I think sheep are kind of stupid. <laughs> but, but, but the point is, in terms of in terms of their falling into line and doing what their leader calls upon them to do, that's sheep. In terms of getting in trouble and doing things that are self-destructive, that's goats. And so it's not an accident, I think, that the sheep represent those on the right hand who are going to, to have eternal life and the goats are the ones who are going to be condemned. Let's go on and see what happens in in the rest of it how did you read all the way to the end of the chapter no no, no we just stopped with just the those on the right the sheep all right so let's uh, go on like, yeah those on the left are, are waiting to hear what's going to be said about them and so we get down to verse 41 then he'll also say to those on the left hand depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels and then he gives the same scenario, hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, uh, sick, and in prison, but they did not take care of Jesus. And they, they're just a surprise, the verse 44, when did we see you that way? And he gives the same answer, but in the opposite response, surely I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you, didn't, you did not do it to me, 45. 46 then sums it up. These will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Mm -hmm. And so, again, they were surprised at this condemnation, that they're cursed, that they're cast away from God's presence. But the, the judgment is fair. The judgment is the same on both sides uh, for what they did or didn't do. And, of course, this isn't the only criteria or the only conditions upon which God is going to judge. But it is pretty clear, and it's a strong one, and it's a consistent one, you know, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the lengthiest text of the final judgment that we have in Scripture, and it's all about how we treat one another. And, and Joe, correct me if I'm missing something here, but I'm not so sure that it paints a picture of them being surprised at the judgment they receive as they are surprised at the fact that they either did uh, help the Lord when they helped others or that they did, they thought they did good. I thought I did enough. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. And, and, to, and the reason I bring that up, there, there are going to be people who are going to be surprised at the day of judgment because they're going to be alive when the Lord returns and they're going to see him. And all of a sudden it's going to be the judgment and they're going to be surprised. They're going to have thought they were okay. But for those who have passed on and they've been awaiting this day of judgment from from the vantage point, not in this lifetime, they passed on beyond death or they're in death, they're going to know once they're going to know they're either in a place of torment or they're in a place of comfort, uh, but they may still not understand what, what did I do wrong? And they're going to find out. It's going to be, 
declared. And every knee shall bow, Romans the 14th chapter, every knee shall bow. So every knee is going to have to acknowledge the righteousness of God's judgment. And so a couple of interesting things I, I think really stand out in this is just the overall themes. Um, what has God prepared for mankind? Verse 34, uh, the kingdom. Uh, he said it was prepared for you from the foundation. Right. What was hell, who was hell prepared for? The devil and his angels. Verse 41. The devil yeah. and his angels. Yeah, but if we choose to go there, God's going to allow us. That's right. If if by our decisions that's what we choose, then then you know we're going to be on the left. Yeah, the eternal um, fire was not prepared for man; it was prepared for the devil and his angels. Right. Yes. All right. So we got a question. Uh, somebody who missed the first fifteen minutes of the program today, and wanting to, and the question is, where is the most logical transition point? I, I didn't see the whole question. I saw the first part. I think he's asking, where is the most logical transition point from talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD seventy? To the, to the final day of judgment. And so, Pat, what we said was, um, actually, this is what I said. It's difficult to, find, to nail down exactly where that transition point is. Joe may actually have the answer. Well, uh, my, my answer would be, I would agree with you. I, I do <laughs> think it's difficult. And I think that might be on purpose. You know, it, it may not just, it may not be intended to be so black and white as we see the destruction of Jerusalem foreshadowing a, uh, That's an a judgment call. of the world. Yeah. Um, you know, we see that in some other Old Testament, particularly with the prophets, where they will talk about something happening to Egypt or whatever. And we know they're not talking about Egypt. Uh, that's already happened. Um, uh, and, and yet um, what they're talking about is Babylon instead, but they may use the terminology of Egypt. Uh, we have this pattern of different uh, of judgments going on for mm -hmm. a long, long time. And so here there may just be this transition that's sort of, uh, I would put it at verse 45, but I would not argue about that. Um, uh, that, that seems to me. To Matthew chapter logical. 24, verse 45. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, All right. Well, let's move on to Matthew chapter 26. So so now we've gotten to the point where we're in this last week of Jesus. We've gotten a pretty good picture of the teaching he's been doing all through that week. When he came in and cleansed the temple on what would have been Sunday, and then his teaching on Monday and Tuesday. Now, the, the placement in the chronology of, of this next event is, is a little bit difficult. Matthew may not place it exactly um in chronological order verse 26 chapter 26 verse 1 begins it came to pass when jesus had finished all these words he said unto his disciples you know that after two days the passover comes so this is clear at this point matthew's telling us we're probably i would take it that if he says after two days you could count wednesday and thursday as the two days and thursday evening would be the passover meal and he could actually be saying this on Wednesday and the way they counted time, that would be after two days. If they're on Wednesday and something's gonna happen in, in the evening of Thursday, they would say that's two days. So th this could be Wednesday. And then it says, then we're gathered together the chief priests, this is now verse three. Uh, then we're gathered together the chief priests and the elders of the people under the court of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. And they took counsel together that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest the tumult arise among the people. So they're trying to avoid taking Jesus during the feast, but they do want to take him. They've, they've had it. And then it starts a story 
about Jesus in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, this is the part that I think is a little hard to nail down chronologically. John, in John the 12th chapter, puts this six days before Passover. That's right. in John the 12th chapter and verse, uh, verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So if you count going backwards, you start with Thursday. That's one Wednesday, Tuesday, uh, Monday, Sunday. That's five days. It's, it's possible then that this, this supper here is actually before the triumphal entry. This could have been on Saturday before the events of Matthew 21, and Matthew may have this out of chrono chronological order here. But in yeah, any event, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I, I just I, I think that's exactly right. Uh, in John 12, I think it really makes that, that argument strong. This is just sort of a flashback. Yeah. Um, uh, 6 through 16, maybe, um, uh, as they are, are looking at this opportunity to betray him. Judas, because of that, that flashback, what had taken place in Bethany, then that's going to provide the, the scenario for them to betray him. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think that's why Matthew puts this story here. Now, he's going to introduce Judas' betrayal, and I think you're right. There's a connection between this story and Judas' betrayal. All right, so in verse 6, when Jesus was in Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, and that's interesting because if you read it in John's account, you would not realize it was not actually in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. Martha's serving, but it's in the home of Simon the leper. There came unto him a woman having an alabaster cruise of exceeding precious ointment, and she poured it upon his head as he sat at meat. Uh, now, I guess I want to pause here, Joe, because we have these, these accounts of this woman here in John 12 and Matthew 26 that are so clearly the same incident. We know this woman is Mary, um, who is the sister of Martha and the sister of, of Lazarus. But there is also a story in Luke, the seventh chapter, of a woman who's just, just described as a sinner. And that seems to be much earlier in Jesus' ministry. And she comes and she anoints Jesus' feet when Jesus is dining in the home of a man also named Simon. And so people sometimes conflate these and think that it's all the same incident. And, and then they have Mary here being this sinful woman uh, that's described in Luke 7. Um, I, I really don't believe they are the same incident. I believe John 12 and Matthew 26 are the same incident. I believe in Luke 7, that's something much earlier in Jesus' ministry. And, and the fact that both hosts are named Simon, Simon was an exceedingly popular name because it was one of the 12 tribes, Simeon. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. We see a number of other things, uh, the cleansing of the temple in John 2, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he does it again at the very end. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there are a number of things. We, we just talked about the connections between the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew 7, and this text in Matthew 25, um, mm -hmm. there are things that happen at the beginning that happen at the end. Mm -hmm. they, they sort of set a, uh, an, an initiation and a conclusion to the things mm -hmm. that Jesus is doing. Mm -hmm. There's another interesting little similarity. In both cases, the woman has an alabaster cruise of ointment. Well, that was probably a fairly typical container that you would have for a precious ointment like this. Right. So, all right, well, let's find out what happens. So in back to Matthew chapter 26, this woman, whom from John's account we know to be Mary, the, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, 
she, uh, she anoints Jesus upon his head with this precious ointment. And when the disciples saw it, they had indignation saying, to what purpose is this waste? For this ointment might have been given, might have been sold for much and given to the poor. This is such a waste. We could have used that, the value of that, because sold that ointment and had the money from it to help the poor people. John's account singles out Judas as saying that. And it tells us that Judas said that because he was a thief. And, and he was the one whom Jesus had charged with the responsibility of keeping the money back. So if they had sold that ointment and gotten the money for it, they would have put that money in the money bag that would have been in Judas's possession. And ideally, they would have used that money for their various needs and to help poor people on occasion. But Judas would have helped himself to it. But the fact that John singles out Judas leads me to the belief that Judas is the one who speaks up and says this, and his motivation is evil. His motivation is, I want to get my hands on that money. But when he speaks up with evil motivation, the rest of the disciples chime in, not realizing the evil intent that he has, and they just go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you know, Joe, I've seen that happen. I've seen in a congregation, one person who, who really has a problem, has an ax to grind, has a gripe, has an agenda, maybe covering up some of his or her own sin, start stirring up trouble and says something that halfway sounds sensible and gets a whole bunch of other people to chime in with it. And I kind of think that's what goes on here. I think that's exactly right. We need to be very cautious at, at following movements um, uh, or, or, you know, uh, popular um, thoughts without carefully examining them yeah. and, and thinking uh, righteous judgment, you know, mm -hmm. okay, what's God really say about this and how ought I to respond, how ought I to behave? You know, just the, the very idea that they're speaking about how bad this is when Jesus hasn't said anything yet. You know, yeah. let's wait and let the Lord tell us. I would not have done any better, I confess. Um, uh, but boy, uh, it, you know, it seems like somebody ought to say, well, Jesus, how should we feel about this? Yeah. And he does have, he has something to say about that. Right. Verse 10, Jesus perceiving it said to them, why, why trouble you the woman? She has wrought a good work upon me. For you have the poor always with you, but me, you have not always. Even as you were stressing earlier, Jesus teaches us that we're to be considerate of those who are less fortunate and helpful and compassionate toward them. Our, our number one devotion is to the Lord himself, to Jesus. And he says in verse 12, in that she poured this ointment upon my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. He is within a week. Of his, of his crucifixion, and he knows that. And apparently, she has an inkling. Things are coming to a head. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached in the whole world, that also which this woman has done shall be spoken of for a memorial for her. And I never can go through this passage without making note, here we sit 2,000 years later, halfway around the world, talking about what this woman did. And so he was right. Yeah, what a, what a, what a great example you know, we, we look at the cross and we see all these horrible things that are taking place, but every once in a while we get these rays of sunshine coming through. And like this 
uh, woman, uh, Mary, from, from John's account. Um, now, you what, hinted what at a connection between this story and Judas's betrayal, and let's see if we can squeeze that in in the last minute here. Uh -huh. John tells us it was Judas who said, especially, you know, with evil motive, this should have been sold and given to the poor. Basically, he got slapped down. And I don't think it's an accident that it's immediately after that, that Matthew tells us, verse 14, then one of the 12 who's called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me? And I will deliver him unto you. Well, they're, they're looking for an opportunity. And so he, they, they weighed unto him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time, he sought opportunity to, to deliver him unto them. Final thoughts before we have to wrap it up today. We didn't get as far as I thought we would. So the, the, the Jewish leaders were not wanting to kill him during the Passover, but this is just too good for them to pass right. up, they, right. they believe. Right, good. Um, and so they're going to betray him for the, the cost of a slave. Yeah, closing the loop on that. All right, thanks, Joe. And thank you for those of you who listened to this webcast. We'll see you next week, Lord willing.